Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when you think of your assets, you probably think of your money, but you also have three other hugely important assets at your disposal too, your time, energy, and priorities. When you manage these assets poorly, you can feel overwhelmed and scattered and yet unproductive and unfulfilled. When you manage them well, things in your personal and professional life click and you experience traction and satisfaction. So how do you avoid the first situation and achieve the second? My guest today, Kerry Newhoff, provides answers in his book, At Your Best, How to Get Time, Priorities, and Energy Working in Your Favor. We begin our conversation with Kerry's story of achieving success only to suffer burnout and how burnout has become less of a job problem these days than a general life problem. We then talk about how to leave what Kerry calls the stress spiral and get into the thrive cycle. We discuss the two mental shifts you need to make to better manage your time, how to keep other people and yourself from hijacking your priorities, the power of categorical decision-making and separating the good from the best, and why you need to put even your personal commitments on your calendar. We also talk about scheduling your daily task and what Carrie calls your green, yellow, and red energy zones and how to spend your time more strategically. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash at your best. All right, Carrie Newhoff, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me, Brett. So you got a book out called At Your Best, How to Get Time, Energy, and Priorities Working in Your Favor. And this book talks about the changes you made in your life when you experienced some pretty massive burnout in your career and in your personal life. It's about 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, can you walk us through what led up to the burnout? And like, at what point did you realize, man, I got a problem and I got to do something about this? One of my problems was I didn't realize I had a problem. <laughs> and I think that's how a lot of people get into this spiral of, of burnout, whatever degree it happens to be in. Yeah. So for me, I had been in leadership for about a decade. I was leading a very fast growing not-for-profit organization and I had a really terrible formula. And the formula was that the more growth I had, the more hours I had to work. And that doesn't scale. It just doesn't scale. I tend to be kind of a driven person, strong-willed leader, strong-willed person. And I had convinced myself that I didn't have any limits, that you know, other people might have to sleep more, other people may have to take time off, but I didn't really need to do it. Sort of a classic entrepreneurial mindset. And, and that worked for a long time. I had people warn me all through my 30s. They're like, hey, dude, if you keep working like this, you're going to burn out. And I'm like, nah, that's not going to happen. And then what was the most shocking part of that for me was in many ways, I was at the top of my game. I had just spoken to 2,500 leaders in Atlanta at a major conference. It was like the biggest speaking event I had at that time to date in my life. You know, we were growing really fast. And I thought, my life is fantastic. And then my body went on strike and I woke up one day and my usual passion was gone and my thinking was not very clear. And I thought, oh, I like I got to get some more sleep. So I did. And what was worse is I, I just kept getting worse and worse to the point where my passion was gone, my joy was gone. I thought, wow, I maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end of the road for me. And I had brain fog like I'd never had before. So that's how burnout hit me. And yeah, that's, uh, and I, I didn't recognize the signs. I guess it was it sort of like a, the boiling frog. Like you didn't, you didn't recognize it as it was happening. Yeah, no, exactly. And then one day you're dead. And looking back on it, I'm like, okay, I did not declare a finish line. So my body decided to. And that seems to be a more and more common story that you hear from leaders is like, I thought everything was okay, or I thought it was normal. Now, having lived the last 15 years a lot healthier, I can look back and say that level of fatigue is not normal. Like when you're driving in your car for five minutes, you feel like you need to pull over at the side of the road and have a nap. That is not normal life. When you're kind of redlining your emotions all the time, or actually, you know, what was weird with my emotions and this could be a, a clue for people to see how close they are to burnout, is I had found myself growing increasingly numb. I wasn't feeling like life is a series of highs and lows. And as much as we'd all love to avoid the lows, you're supposed to feel them. Like when somebody close to you gets sick, that is supposed to register in your heart. And conversely, when someone has some really good news, you know, they broke some kind of sales record or maybe they're expecting a child or something. You should feel happy for them. And I was increasingly just experiencing life as going through the motions and I was kind of numb. And then when my emotions would surface, they would often be 
not related to what they should be. So if I've got two boys, if one of them was supposed to take out the trash, they didn't take out the trash, I might melt down on them. And like that's a three out of 10 on the problem scale, but I treated it like a 12 out of 10. So there were signs at, at that point, but I, I just ignored them and blew through them because I thought, well, the rules don't apply to me. And of course, they never apply to you until, until they do. So you were, this, you said you were a leader of a nonprofit organization. Is this the church that you were leading? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I was running a church at a time. I'd originally trained as a lawyer. So I spent my 20s in university, which is a whole other story for another day, but went through the whole law thing in the middle of law school, felt a call into ministry and ended up finishing law and then going into seminary. And I started at three very small, like handful of people, country churches that really hadn't changed in about 30 years. And then obviously new leadership brings change. And we became the fastest growing church in our denomination in the country and one of the largest in the country in a period of about a decade. So it was that rocket ride that I was riding that just about killed me. Well, and you make this point in the book, like you were doing the thing that you wanted to do, right? You wanted yeah. to, you know, this is something you were passionate, you felt called to, but the thing that you wanted to do was causing you burnout. And this was happening, this happens, you said this happens to a lot of people, people who they're doing the thing they love, they're starting a business, they're whatever, and that's the thing that's that's killing them. Like, what's going on there? Well, you know, it seems to be a human condition, yeah, because that's really surprising. Like, from my own perspective as a person of faith, it's like, how could any of this be bad? And I think that kind of got in my way, to be honest with you, because I thought, well, look, the church is growing like crazy. I can't be unhealthy. And of course, I was unhealthy. But it also reminded me of what I saw in law. I mean, I went to law school. I worked in downtown Toronto for a year. I'm Canadian. And I worked in the financial sector. So I saw law at what you might call the top of the game, right? Like Wall Street law kind of thing. And What I noticed there is all these people had dream jobs. My colleagues and the people I was working with for that year had dream jobs, and most of them hated it. Like they had the house, they had the, you know, I remember one guy had a horse farm in the country and every day he, he, or every week he would buy a lottery ticket, walk it into the firm. Of course, I'm in my mid twenties at that point. He'd wave it in my face and he goes, Carrie, if, if I ever win this lottery, I'm out of here. You'll never see my face again. And I thought, really? This is like the pinnacle of success, right? Like if you're, if you're going to do law, this is near the top of the food chain and you hate the life you built. Like, what is that? And then I began to run into that same kind of thing in ministry. And I've, I've seen that in so many people's lives. It's just the stress gets to you and you don't have a formula for how to deal with it. And success can leave you feeling empty on the inside or burned out. What do you think is the the nature of the type of work that causes burnout? So like, I, I know that pastoral burnout is pretty common. Yeah. I can see lawyer burnout. I, I know that. And then like there's caregiver burnout, like nurses, doctors, people. Right. Is it like, yeah. is if you're dealing with people, like, is that what, is that what causes burnout? Cause I, I look at all those, all those jobs, like you just deal with a lot of people in difficult situations all the time. That makes sense. You would get burnout. Oh, for sure. In ministry, I mean, it's really hard to say no to people, people you love, people you care about. We were navigating 30% growth year after year for a number of years. So there was just a run. I've, I've heard, I don't know how true this is, that 15% growth is scalable. Like you can handle that. 30 Anything above that becomes difficult to manage. I was finding it difficult to manage at that point. I don't know. It is endemic to certain careers. For sure, burnout, as, as I understand the, the origin of the term, was originally a term to describe the feeling that doctors had in the 1970s, it was like, I feel burned out. I've got compassion fatigue. I've got, you know, too many hours. And, and the stories you have from the internships of doctors and the residencies are just, just crazy. And you do know a lot of burned out lawyers. It's easy to get cynical. But what I'm noticing, and, and I don't know whether you'd agree with this or whether you see this or not, Brett, in, in your work, but I'm seeing it move from like a work condition to a life condition in the last decade. I meet burned out people everywhere. I meet them in helping professions. I meet them in, you know, other jobs. I meet them online. I meet them stay at home parents feel burned out. I've met retired people who are struggling with overwhelm and I'm like, whoa, what, what's going on? I think technology maybe had a role in that. And I'm, I'm a fan of technology. I'm a podcaster like you are. I run a digital company. 
But for the first time in history, for the last 15 years, we're having to deal with being on call 24-7 with devices in our pockets that give the world access to us. I don't know that, that we're built to handle that kind of, of scale of communication and access. So I see it expanding. And, uh, and I've also seen some very happy lawyers, some very satisfied pastors. You know, my last 15 years, totally different story than the first 10 years in leadership. But uh, yeah, that could definitely be an issue. But I see it as pretty widespread now. Something you also talked about in the book when you started this burnout, like you didn't know you you didn't recognize you were burnt out right away, but you did notice like I'm there's a lot of stress and I'm just it's it's crazy town things are growing fast, and you would start telling yourself these excuses of you know what's going on here, and one of them was like well this is just a season like well we get through this like we get through this year and things will level off and be better and you get to the year, end of the year and it just got crazier. I mean, any other excuses you found yourself telling yourself as you started experiencing this increased level of stress? Yeah, that was, I mean, could be a whole podcast. I had all kinds of reasons. And, and I had that. Fortunately, I have good friends and good family and they would say, you know, what's new with you, Carrie? I'm like, well, I'm flying here, flying there. I'm writing this book or whatever. Things are really busy. It's just a busy season. And eventually they started calling me on it and I realized, oh, like seasons have beginnings and endings. And if your season has no ending, it's not a season, it's your life. So, you know, I got called out on that one. Another lie I think I probably bought into or an excuse I told myself is this is the price of success. Like if you want to have something that's growing quickly and you want to accomplish your mission, it's going to cost you personally. I don't believe that anymore, but I, I fell for that hook, line and sinker. And yeah, those, those are a couple of lies I believed. The other thing I really struggled with was I had a sense of time famine. And I lived in this imaginary world where I thought, if I could only have more time, if I could only have more time, and I just don't have enough time to get a proper day off. I just don't have enough time. And, and the, I think the answer for me was always around the corner, like one more hire or one more season. Or if I can just get to Christmas vacation, then I will be better. And of course, that that never solves the problem. The problem was internal. The problem was the way that I was approaching leadership and the way that I was stewarding this life I had been given. And uh, once I fixed that, <laughs> all the problems, well, those problems seem to go away. Yeah, once you get to Christmas vacation, then Christmas vacation is crazy busy because you got all the holiday yeah. stuff you're doing. And then you're living for spring break. Yeah. Right? Then you're living for spring. Then you have to like, but then like you, you live for those moments and you have to do a lot of work before you take the break and then you can kind of enjoy your break. And then when you get back, there's all this work that's built up because you've taken a break and then you just have to, you work like the Dickens to you know, catch up on your work. Uh, it's yeah. All right. So yeah, that's an excuse you got to get out. Like this is you just got to accept that this is the normal. This is the norm. I've got stuff. Things are out of control. I need to get a handle on it. Uh, let's talk about first, like how we get on that pathway towards burnout. And you argue that it's all because we hop on what you call the stress spiral. And there's stages to this. What's the on-ramp? Like what gets us onto this downward stress spiral? I tried to put my finger when I was writing the book, I tried to put my finger on the condition that so many people find themselves in. And, and I named it the stress spiral. And the stress spiral is really three conditions we find ourselves in, overwhelmed, overworked, and overcommitted. And I would say the majority of leaders I interact with these days and the majority of people I know in my life would identify with, you know, two or three out of the three. I feel overwhelmed. I feel overcommitted. I've said yes to too many things and I'm overworked. I'm putting in too many hours doing whatever I do. And how do you get there? Well, I think you get into the stress spiral. As I really thought about it, there are three primary assets all of us are handling every single day, no matter what your life situation is. Time, energy, and priorities. On a vacation, you're dealing with that. How are we going to spend the day? What's the most important thing to do? Do we, do we go out for breakfast? Do we eat in? Do you think we have time for a round of golf today? Or, you know, so-and-so wants us to do X. So it's time energy. I'm pretty tired today. I don't know whether I can do 18 holes or at least maybe we better get a cart, right? 
or, or priorities. So even on vacation, you're dealing with that. And at work, that's what you're dealing with. And in life, in normal life, you're dealing with that all the time. And when I began to look back on the period leading into burnout, I noticed that my time was unfocused. I spent it very randomly, usually in a reactive mode to whatever was happening in the moment. Uh, My energy levels, I was really unaware of other than most of the time I felt tired. And then the priorities that I was dealing with, I just let other people hijack my priorities all the time. And so when you have unfocused time, unleveraged energy, and hijacked priorities, you end up feeling overwhelmed, overworked, and overcommitted, and hence you're in the stress spiral. So this unfocused uh, time, I mean, that, I mean, you said you were reactive. I mean, would you just wake, walk in the office, look at your inbox, and let your inbox dictate what you would spend your time on? Totally. I let everybody, knocks on the door, inboxes, you know, texting was becoming a thing in 2006. And, and again, rapidly growing organization. Everybody wants to meet with you and you want to meet with everybody. And so, and then of course, in ministry and a helping profession, you're dealing with a lot of crises. I was talking to a pastor the other day who said his Saturday got blown up by two families that were in crisis. And of course, what I've learned is when your marriage is falling apart, that didn't happen on a Friday night. And now you need help on Saturday. Your marriage has been falling apart for years. So, Perhaps I can't meet you on my day off, but maybe I can meet you next Tuesday at three o'clock. But I didn't know that back then. So I just let other people determine how I spent my day. And then the the really stressful part of that is like now I run a, a digital communications company. But back when I was working at a church and leading a church, there was a message due almost, you know, every Sunday. And so I had to show up with something fresh to say, something faithful to say, and something marginally creative so that it engaged people's attention. And again, you know, when you lead a larger church, preaching is an awful lot of the formula for why people come. And so I had that pressure. And when I let other people hijack my mornings, my afternoons, that left like late afternoon for me trying to come up with something I was going to say on the weekend. And of course, then that always bled into the evenings and into days off. So it was just a mess. And this going back to this working not in align with your energies. Like sometimes you just work on like these really hard, like writing a, a sermon, for example, like something that's really creative, requires a lot of thought, a lot of energy. And you'd have to work on that when you weren't feeling that. And sometimes it would end up subpar. Exactly. Yeah. Like in the stress spiral, unleveraged energy is something I had to think about as I got healthier. Because I realized my energy, even on my best days, when I'm fully rested, I'm healthy, I'm feeling good, I'm not burned out, it waxes and wanes over the course of a day. And everybody who's listening to this knows that because you've identified yourself at some point as a night owl or a morning person, or Daniel Pink would argue a lot of people really peak midday let's say between 10 and 2 or they're afternoon people, but there's a percentage of people who are morning people. Do you have a bias one way or the other? Like, would you say you're a morning person, Brett, or a night owl? Or I would say morning person, like late morning. That's when I get my best work done. So your peak hours would be what? After uh, nine? Like, uh, yeah, I'd 10? say after nine. So like between, yeah, nine and 11, nine and 12, I would say would be, be my best hours. Okay. You know, you know what you just did? You just confirmed science. Oh, wow. And I lived in my 30s as though I had 12 peak hours in a day. And nobody does that. Like maybe a robot does or your car can run for 12 hours at a certain speed, but human beings can't. And you've just affirmed what I discovered the hard way. You get about three to five peak hours in a day where your energy is at its best, where you have no brain fog or, or very little, and you're feeling great, and the ideas flow. If you're a writer, like you, you produce your best content in that time. If you're working on strategy, your thinking is clear, you're able to map out the future. If you're working on spreadsheets, you just haven't got that many errors, right? Or maybe you came up with a really creative pivot table that you haven't thought of before. That's about three to five hours where your energy is at its peak. And then all of us end up with an hour or two in a typical day where we're kind of dragging. For me, that's between four and six in the afternoon. Do you have an hour or two where you're like, yeah, I either need a nap or I need to go for a run or something? Yeah, like three, and between three and five. And that's when I usually do my workout. It's like 4.30. Very typical. And, And a really good use of your workout zone. I know that's important to you, but are you training for the Olympics? Probably not. Yeah. 
No. Yeah. So you don't need to take your prime time to do your workouts. A lot of morning people still work out in the morning. And if that really helps you be more productive, awesome. But I've moved my exercise to the late afternoon because otherwise I either want to have a nap or I want to uh, I want to get moving my body so that I, I sort of get re-energized for the evening. So what I discovered with that time is I was spending it really unstrategically wasting my best hours of the day where I could produce the best content that I was capable of producing and often putting it off till the late afternoon when I was already tired, over-caffeinated, and when I didn't feel like doing it anymore. And it just created this, this stress spiral that led me further and further and eventually into burnout. And I want to talk more about how we can leverage our energy. And part of that is getting on what you call the thrive cycle, which is yeah. the opposite of the stress cycle. And the first step of getting on the thrive cycle is focusing your time instead of having unfocused yeah. time. And you argue, you know, the first step in focusing your time is you have to make two critical mental shifts about time if you want to do a better job managing your, managing your time. So what are those two mental shifts? Well, the first mental shift I made was I had to get past my excuses, which we've hinted at already. And my excuse was, I don't have the time for that. And I read this little book. I don't think it's even in print anymore. And I don't remember where I got it or even what the title is. But it was about, what is your life like if you're the president of the United States? I think it was written for eighth graders. I don't know how I ended up reading it. It was probably a bad season of my life. But it was really fascinating. And I remember having this aha moment where I thought the president of the United States gets as many hours in the day as any other human being. And he, or maybe in the future, she has to, at that point, govern the free world with that same 24 hours in a day that I get. And it made me think about all the really successful leaders I admire and, and the very best. They, they make you feel they're never in a rush. They have all the time in the world for you. They really pay attention to you and they might be running 20 companies, but you'd never know it. They're, they're not frantic. And I started calling myself out on my speech and auditing my speech. And I made myself stop saying things like, I don't have the time to do that because I realized I, I did. Like all through my thirties, people said, Carrie, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. And I would always say, I don't have the time for that. I don't have the time for that. Well, since I burned out, I've written five books over the last decade. And I had the time for it. I just wasn't taking it. I also got rid of my excuse language when it came to, sorry, I couldn't get that done. Well, actually, I could have gotten it done. I chose not to. And when I got honest with myself, it really made me come to terms with how I was squandering time. And then the second shift I made when it comes to time management, and these are like easy to, to recognize and to understand, very difficult to do. But I would say, to just to wrap up the first one before we dive fully into the second one, is stop saying you don't have the time. Start admitting to yourself you didn't make it. Now that's really hard, but if you, if you're consistently for a month not making the time to work out, that tells you something about your priorities. Or if your mom's been saying, Hey, when are you going to call me? And for a month you haven't called your mom because you're telling yourself, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I don't have the time. Well, really you haven't had like 20 minutes to call your mom in the last month. Like it makes you get really honest with yourself. And then the second mental shift was to decide to abandon balance and embrace passion. I had thought about balance as a, as a life goal for a long time and probably put it on my New Year's resolutions on different years. And then I began to look at balanced people. People, very few people claim to have achieved balance. But when I saw it, it started to bother me because in the lives of the people I knew who would say, Hey, I'm really balanced. It seems like their balance was a retreat. They kept stepping back. I'm doing less work. I'm doing less of this. I'm doing less of that. And. As I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Like, I don't want to do less with my life. I want to make a difference. And so I decided to abandon balance and embrace passion. That whatever I allow on my calendar, whatever I allow, if I'm going to preach on the weekend, I'm going to do a killer job. If I'm going to do this interview, I'm going to walk in prepared. If I'm going to have a date night with my wife and we've been married for decades, I'm going to show up fully present. If I'm spending a day with my sons who are now grown, I'm going to be there, not like half on my phone. So I just decided whatever I allow in my life, which is a minority of the opportunities that I have, I'm just going to be fully present and I'm going to do it passionately. And that has made a huge difference. And by the way, that also applies to time off. If I'm going to vacation, 
I'm going to vacation. If I'm going to sleep for eight hours, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm going to sleep passionately. I'm going to get a great night's sleep so I can hit the ground running the next day. So that was those were two really helpful ways to think about time and how to approach time. I've got the time. If I didn't do it, I just didn't make it. And then whatever I allow myself to do, I'm going to do passionately. And I imagine what that did is it made you pickier about the things you committed to. Way pickier, way pickier. And, you know, it got me to the point where I thought, I'm just not going to say yes. And this is still hard. Like if you're looking at an active thing I have to work on daily, like you, I get far more opportunities than I have time available to do them. Just this morning, I got a text from a friend. Hey, you want to be on my podcast? I asked my staff. They said, well, you're booking three months in advance. So I had to let them know, no, I can't do it. And old me would have found a crack in the calendar and would have said, yeah, I can do that with you. And my assistant said, but Carrie, you need to write a really good article for next week and get a book launch coming up and you got this coming up and you got that coming up. You really can't do it. So yeah, that allows me to be fully present for this interview as well. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsor. It used to be hard to find the exact auto part you needed, and that meant spending a lot of time at swap meets. It's a different game now, where you can order exactly what you need from eBay Motors. They have 122 million parts, so you can always find the right fitment. Spend less time searching and more time building with eBay Motors app, or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. And now back to the show. Well, so this, you know, focusing your time is very connected to hijacking or preventing hijack of your priorities. So this is an example. Mm-hmm. You, you have these filters in place that you've put in, in place for yourself where it makes it harder for other people to hijack your priorities. Any other tips that you found that are useful to prevent that from happening? One hijack priority person is you. You are a good hijacker of your own priorities. I know I am because I can be completely undistracted. So let's say... I recognize I've got those peak energy times, which mine are about 7 to 11 a.m., and I'm going to work on a really big article for a major publication. I am fully capable of distracting myself. I may have put the world at bay and said, you guys stay away, and they stay away. And next thing you know, I'm five videos into a YouTube wormhole that I can't get out of, or I get bored. We're getting, we're getting addicted to being constantly connected to other people. So I think you can hijack your own priorities. So I encourage, and this is not new advice, but I encourage everyone, turn off all notifications on all of your devices. And a a shocking number of people have never done that. And you can program a few people to ring through. I have some favorites on my iPhone that can get to me anytime, but they're the kinds of people that tend not to interrupt me on a constant basis or they wouldn't be a favorite. So, you know, if you're worried about your daughter, well, your daughter can phone through. That's fine. But if she's interrupting you five times a day, you can have a conversation with her about that. So you have to watch your own distractions. Another one definitely is people. People can be a huge distraction. And there's a, there's a principle, I think, for how you manage your time, which I hope helps a lot of people. And it's simply that the wrong people will always ask for your time and the right people never will. Maybe your spouse, if you're married or your partner wishes that they could spend more time with you or your kids wish they could spend more time with you or you haven't talked to your best friend in a little while, they're rarely going to be as persistent as some of the chronic underperformers at work or the people whose lives are constantly in crisis. So again, being in ministry, you know, we had crises almost every day. And what I learned over time, and this is, this is hard, but people who are in the helping profession will probably realize this. There are some people who actually do not want to get well and they will suck your time. So sometimes it's the people who always have a new crisis in their life. It's like, well, last week it was this, but this week it's this. And they want to see you and they want to see you this morning and they want to see you on their schedule. And I had to learn that probably that is not the best use of their time and not the best use of my time. Psychologist John Townsend says people like that sometimes have a flat learning curve. They just want your time, but they don't want to get better. Another thing you'll do as a boss, and I've been a boss for over two decades, is you'll say, well, I got to spend time with my low performers, the staff member who's always late, or somebody who just can never hit their targets, right? You're really not doing very well at this job, so I got to meet with you again. And you owe that to everyone once or twice. But the reality is there's probably some people in your life that you've been meeting with now for months about being late, and they're still late. Or the people who never hit their quotas. 
And you got to ask yourself, like, is that the best use of your time? Because number one, those meetings are draining. Number two, you're not helped by it. And number three, neither are they. And if they're looking for a way to improve their lives, you're probably not the coach that's going to help them do it. So what I've had to do over the last 15 years is make sure, yeah, I'll meet any team member anybody wants. But if my coaching isn't making them better, why do I keep coming back to that week after week after week? When I cleared all of that off of my calendar, first of all, I had way fewer meetings. Secondly, I then started to call up some of the best people in my life, like the top performers. Who is your best salesperson? Who's your best vice president? Who is your best associate pastor? Who is your best whatever? And meet with them because they're not asking for your time. And they're doing a great job doing what they're doing. But what I've learned is those, those meetings are almost always energizing. Number two, everybody gets better. So your mission actually gets accomplished. And number three, they really appreciate it and will lean in even harder. And you should do the same with the most important people in your life, with your family, with your best friends, with, with the people who are really producing well. It creates kind of a virtuous loop, a virtuous cycle. How do you handle, okay, so what's about those people who come to, come to you for help? Like they're just struggling and you keep meeting with them and nothing seems to get better. How do you tell them this isn't, I can't do this anymore in a way that's, I guess, compassionate is the right word? Because obviously they're struggling and they're hurting and they're, they need something. So how yeah, do you say, yeah. this isn't the best thing for either of us? Mm-hmm. What, what does that look like? Yeah, it's hard. It never gets easy. But what I would typically do, it's not that different from your question, is to sit down with them and say, you know, I really appreciated meeting with you. Clearly, you've got a lot going on. I am not sure that I'm the person who's going to be able to help you with that. So I did go to seminary as well as law school. And, you know, I'm not a counselor. I don't have a doctorate in that. And so what I would often do in a case like that, and of course, as our church got bigger into the thousands, I had to start referring people almost immediately to trained professional counselors. But that would be one thing. And that happens in in business too, right? Where sometimes you're meeting with people and you realize, I'm not really helping them with that. And if that's the case, you can get them professional help. You can do an outside referral, or maybe there's somebody else in the firm or someone else in the organization that is better positioned for that. But I started to have that conversation. And, and I would just say, I don't have the toolkit to fix your marriage. That's not what I train for. I, I can preach a decent sermon. And I would often tell people, I, I can counsel a thousand people on the weekend. I'm just not very good at doing it one-on-one. And most people got that. Most people understood that. When it comes to low performers at work, if you are not seeing results, that's the time where perhaps you don't have the right fit. It's that adage of hire slowly and fire quickly. And as much as we hate firing people, I had to do that once or twice at the church. I've done that on occasion in my company, but sometimes we get it wrong on the hiring or the skill set isn't, isn't right. And uh, I've learned to do that a lot better over the last 15 years. But if you do it well and you do it compassionately, usually a year down the road, they're better off and so are you because it wasn't the right fit for them. And if you can help them see it, then then that's great. Or alternatively, perhaps you're not the coach to bring that out in them. Maybe there's someone else in the company, an outside person who really can motivate them to show up on time and create better habits, but you're not doing it. So I think when you start to, when it starts to feel like that movie Groundhog Day, you know, where it's just the same thing happening over and over again, that's a clue that that is not a healthy relationship. And it's probably time for you to spend your time doing other things. And besides uh, managing people who, you know, they just, they take a lot of your time, energy, and resources. You also, there's the other problem with managing your priorities is that you might have so many good opportunities presented to you that if you say yes to all of them, you just overextend yourself. So how do you, how do one, figure out, okay, what is the thing I should say yes to? And then two, how do you say no to opportunities without sounding like a jerk or snooty or whatever? It's easy to sound like a jerk. It's not hard at all to do. So you got to be really, really careful. And that's a situation we find ourselves in. Like, you know, our content that I write and produce gets accessed over a million times a month, which is insane when you say that out loud. But just imagine the inbound that comes in as, as it would for your show, Brett. Like it's, it's crazy sometimes when you see the inbound and I'm really grateful for it. But yeah, like most leaders listening to this, whether you lead something small or large, you have more opportunity than you have time available. 
that's just life. You know, too many people want to do things with you. And that's a good problem to have. So a couple of things. One thing that is kind of a, a, a secret hidden power is the power of categorical decision making that you will start to see patterns in your invitation that comes in. So I get a lot of speaking requests and we've been able to pinhole some speaking engagements that I'll always say yes to. And uh, increasingly a number I'll almost always say no to unless there's a very compelling reason. So for example, I tend to speak to leaders rather than just general audiences, which means counterintuitively, I'd rather speak to, you know, a hundred leaders than a thousand generally assembled people. Why? Because I think the leaders are going to have a bigger impact down the road. So is a leadership event. That's a categorical decision. Much simpler examples could be when I was leading a growing church, I decided I don't do weddings, which seems really weird. It's like, you're a pastor, you should do weddings. Well, I didn't because it wasn't the secret to the growth in our ministry and the life change we were seeing. Secondly, they almost always happen on a Saturday, and that was my family day. I had two sons who were at home at the time and a wife I love very much, and I didn't want to spend every Saturday out uh, doing weddings for people I barely knew. And third, we set up a system where we had outside referrals they could go to. So that made it easy. And people would sometimes say, well, that's not fair. You know, you don't do weddings. You're a pastor. And I would make exceptions. So if you were in my family or you worked for me, you were my assistant, I would do your weddings. And if people didn't like that, I'm like, well, you can marry into my family or become my assistant and then I'll do your wedding. But otherwise, it's not, it's not going to work. It just doesn't scale. And so I think that helps. Categorical, another example of categorical decisions. You've seen this in Mark Zuckerberg and used to see it in Steve Jobs. They wear the same thing every day. What is that? It's one less decision they have to make. So what are the decisions you can make right now that kind of pre-decide it? So another classic example that's really easy to implement because I'm best in the mornings. I stop when I realize that I stop doing breakfast meetings. Breakfast meetings were generally not the most strategic thing. I was doing with my time anyway. I could easily flip them to afternoon coffees or lunches. And then I got my writing done in the morning, which is one of the most important things I do, as well as my vision casting and, and planning and strategizing, got that done in the morning. And so if people ask me for breakfast meetings, it's not personal, Brett. I just don't do breakfast meetings. Oh, okay. And most people get that. So those are some categorical decisions. And then how do you do it so it doesn't sound mean? Well, if it's a category, that helps. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm just not available for breakfast meetings. So that's one way to do it. The other thing I would do is I would be very kind in the way you do it. So I joke with my staff all the time that basically I pay some of them to say no all day and that's what they do. And so it sounds like this, man, I'm so honored you would ask Carrie to do your event. Thank you so much. Looks like you're up to some really great stuff. Unfortunately, given our present commitments, we're not able to say yes, but we really appreciate you asking. If there's any other way we can help, please let us know, Carrie, something like that. That's what, that's what I think you can frame it in such a way, because it is a privilege. And if you got to be sincere. If I don't want to do the event, I wouldn't phrase it that way. But the reality is, I would like to do almost everything that comes my way. I like people. I can't believe I get to do what I do. People are good. They have wonderful things that we'd love to be a part of. But in order for me to do the things that I do that seem to move our mission forward, the podcast that I host, the writing that I do, the speaking I accept, I have to be focused on that rather than on some of the other priorities that come our way. And one thing I want to point out too is when you say like, hey, I have a commitment that I've already made, that doesn't necessarily have to be a work commitment. It could be a personal or family commitment too. Bingo. That used to, I was coaching a leader this week who got stuck on a Saturday, which was his day off. And he's got five kids. So like that's a serious investment and they're all at home still. None is in college. And I used to get caught on that all the time. And so this Thrive Calendar, which is is part of the system that I talk about in At Your Best, basically gives an assignment to all of your time. So if you look at my Saturday, I have a recurring appointment every Saturday that says family time. Now, right now at this stage of life, family is my wife and I, and sometimes we see our kids on the weekend and friends. But that way, if you come up to me and corner me at a party or something, you say, Carrie, what are you doing? This Saturday, I can pull out my phone and go, oh, I've got a commitment. Why? What's up? Um, and then most reasonable people leave it at that point. I got pigeonholed into so many 
things that I ended up doing on a Saturday that I didn't want to do because I had nothing in my calendar. Uh, Friday night's date night with my wife. We usually were involved with a small group with our church. So that goes into the calendar. And then, you know, Saturday, Sunday afternoon for years just said rest and refuel on my calendar. So if you're like, what are you doing Sunday? It's like, I got a commitment. But I needed that to do Monday well. So yeah, you can totally program that right into your calendar. Just set up recurring appointments. I've actually got a free calendar download that can do that for you. You just set it up once and then it's done. And then if you want to break your own rule, go ahead. If it's a really great opportunity and you want to give up a Saturday, you can always say, well, you know what? I can change my plans and I'll do that on Saturday with you. But for the most part, that that gives you an out. And it makes sure that the people that you care about the most get the best of your time because they're always the victims, right? When you squander your time, the people you care about most are always the victims of your squandering of that time. Yeah. I think that's an important like mind shift to happen in people's like treat your personal commitments the same way you'd treat a work commitment or, you know, even like a a doctor's appointment. Because I think oftentimes we think personal commitments like, well, it's not that important. And so you can be like, well, yeah, yeah, I can do that thing, but that takes away time from your family. Well, and blank space on your calendar is a trap. It looks like freedom, but it's really jail disguised as liberty. And if, you know, I would encourage you when you're listening to this, as long as you're not driving and you can do it safely, pull out your calendar right now and look three months ahead. Chances are what you'll see is a whole lot of white space on your calendar. And you think, oh, good. Like, December is going to be amazing <laughs> or, you know, February is going to be fantastic. And then you get to February or December. It's no better than it was right now. And you're overwhelmed, overcommitted and overworked. If you make some pre-decisions about how you're going to spend that time now, that Saturday is always going to be family day and Sunday is going to be games day. And, you know, Monday night, I'm going to take some personal time to do a hobby. And Tuesday night, we're going to get together with friends and Wednesday night, I'm going to bed early because Thursday is always a meat grinder. If you put that in your calendar and you program it, you're going to start to live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow. And I think most people, you're exactly right, Brett. They don't feel that they have permission to do that. You have permission. All right. So we've talked about focusing your time. We've talked about managing your priorities better, making sure other people don't hijack your priorities and you you stay on top of that. Let's talk about the energy. We've kind of been kind of flitting about it uh, through our, yeah. throughout our conversation. So you make a big point is that you need to get an idea of when are your energy levels the best during the day and do your most important work then. Yeah. Everybody's going to have a slightly different time window. Yours is nine till noon. Mine is about seven to 11. And that's on a good day. Sometimes it's like seven till 10. That's all I got, right? We're not robots. But you will have three to five peak hours in the day. And everyone from David Allen to Cal Newport to others and the brain research that's been done shows that it really maxes out at about four or five hours. So you're not going to get eight. But figure out when that is. And if you're a night owl, it could be 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. I'm not going to argue with that. If that's when you're at your best, pay attention to that. So I call that your green zone. Your red zone is what we've already touched on. That's when you're tired, you need a nap, you need more caffeine, you got toothpicks to keep your eyes open, right? You got them poached between your eyelids, that kind of thing. And you're just tired. And then everything in between is what I call yellow zone. You're not at your best, you're not at your worst. And so what I would do is give every one of those zones a main task every day. So for me, I'm a writer and I also do podcasting. So it's interview preparation and it's also original writing that I do in my green zone. I do almost no meetings because I can do those fairly well in my yellow zone. In my red zone, that's what you should assign to your least important tasks. Or something like a workout. Again, if you're not training for a big event where you're a professional athlete, your red zone is fine for working out. It's going to rejuvenate you. It's going to make you feel better or take a nap or do something routine like just empty your inbox or fill out that expense report and get it in. Something that isn't going to take a lot of original cognitive energy. And then your yellow zone is for everything else. And So you have green, yellow, red, and the most important thing in managing your energy, and this is where I started to see exponential returns, because the irony in my story is I'm leading 10x what I was when I burned out, and I feel like I have more time. I feel like I've got more energy, and it's because I protected that green zone. It was canceling breakfast meetings. It was not allowing other people to interfere with that green zone so I could get the message written when I was still leading a church, so I could get that article done, so I could get the book edited, so I could think strategically about where we're headed 
adding in the next few years as a communications company. Occasionally, I will bring in some team members. We'll do some really important brainstorming in those morning hours so we can move the needle on our mission. And when I protected that time, it began to produce exponential returns. The other thing I would say about your green zone is when your energy is at its peak, don't just move through your task list. Yeah, you probably got some catching up to do, but you've got to start developing your giftedness. If you want to be a communicator, that's when you start looking at TED Talks and watching TED Talks or reading a book on how to become a better communicator. If you're a lawyer, that's where you study cross-examination techniques or read up on the latest case law. So you're not just prepping for that next day in court, but you're actually becoming a better litigator. And it's like Malcolm Gladwell's rule that the way to become world-class at something is to spend 10,000 hours doing it. And an hour a day in your green zone spent to developing, to thinking, to um, exploring, to developing that gift will make you better and better. You won't notice a difference right away, but give yourself six months and then give yourself six years and you'll be astonished at your development as a person. Because what happens is if you don't protect that time and you don't do that, again, you're doing your most important work with that because nobody ever emailed you to do your most important work, right? They're asking you to do what is most important to them. So you get to that at four o'clock, you're half brain dead and you're never spending time developing your gift. You're just using it. So when I started doing that with my green zone and then leaving the medium important stuff to the yellow zone and the least important stuff to the red zone, that's where I've seen productivity soar. And I've had the privilege of, of training thousands of leaders in the system. They've seen very similar results. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a break through for a lot of people. I'm sure there's people listening to this thing. This all sounds great, but I'm not my own boss. I'm not the CEO. Yeah. So I don't have much control over my schedule. So how can I take advantage of this green zone, yellow zone, red zone framework if I can't make my schedule? It's a great question. I hear it all the time. So let's break that down a little bit. First of all, think about an entire week. It's 168 hours in a week. A work week tends to be about 40 of those. So you've actually got ridiculous control over 128 hours in the week. You can determine your boss isn't telling you when to go to bed. There's no law that says the kids have to be enrolled in sports seven nights a week. Those are all choices. And if you're finding you're overwhelmed, and this is what's really interesting because having run healthier organizations for the last 10 years, I'm realizing in coaching my own staff that a lot of them are realizing, oh, the overwhelm isn't coming from work anymore. It's coming from life. So take a look at those choices. Are they really working for you or are they working against you? And my wife and I have raised two boys. They're in their 20s. And we had a rule back in the day where we just said, you can each enroll in one sport at a time and one music lesson at a time. So we had one son who was very musical, wanted to do drums and keyboard and guitar and everything. We said one at a time. And so he did one at a time. And as a teenager, when he wanted to take up drums and we said, well, that'll be on your dime and on your time because we're, we're committed to other things. He taught himself how to play the drums. They get ingenious. And then another son loved sports and wanted to do everything. And we said, well, when hockey season's over, we can play football. When football's over, we can play soccer. And so we just did one at a time. And we found that was like a choice that really worked for us. So you have a lot of agency in your life. But now let's talk about work. So you have 40 hours on average as a work week. I pulled hundreds of leaders, and these are office workers. So if you're slinging macchiatos at a coffee shop all day, you'll have a slightly different answer to this. But if you're a knowledge worker or entrepreneur, you work in an office, that kind of thing, ask yourself, how many of your working hours are actual command performance hours where you have to be in the boardroom for a meeting at 10 a.m. or on the Zoom call every Wednesday at 9? And the answer that I get back is somewhere between 5 to 12 hours a week, 12 hours being the all-time high watermark I've heard from anybody. So even if you're lower on the hierarchy, even if you're middle management, you probably don't have more than 10 to 12 hours of that work week that are prescribed for you. In other words, you have a lot of agency. So to do a little bit of math, and let's go on the high side, because there might be somebody listening to this podcast, Brett, who's like, listen, Carrie, you should see my boss. I have 20 hours a week where I have to be in this boardroom and then I have to do this and then I have to do that. I don't have any control. If you are that person, 
20 hours a week prescribed by someone else means you still have control over 88% of your hours every single week, which is an insane amount of agency and control. So what I would do is I would focus on what you can control and not on what you can't. And then as you work through this material, we encourage teams to work through it. You can start to have some really fun experiments as a team. You can even say to your boss, Hey, I listened to this podcast. I read this book at your best. I realized like my peak hours are from nine till noon and I'm in meetings most of the time. I want to become more productive. I want to help the company succeed. Is there any way we could move a few of those meetings so that I could do this work on, you know, fill in the blank, developing sales leads, closing deals, whatever you happen to be doing? Is there any way that I could work in that field? And maybe we move some of the meetings around and I'll do that for a couple of months. At the end of the two months, you can evaluate. If you don't see an improvement, we'll go back to the way it was. Unless your boss is insane, they will probably say yes. And if you open it up as a desire, not a demand, I I think you'll be surprised at how many reasonable bosses would love to see you win. Well, Carrie, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, you can learn more about the book and my work at atyourbesttoday.com. That's just atyourbesttoday.com. And then everything, you can butcher my name. It's very difficult to spell, but I'm sure you can see it on your podcast app. It's kerryneuhoff.com, just kerryneuhoff.com. And for the book, it's available widely everywhere and atyourbesttoday.com. Fantastic. Well, Kerry Newhoff, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. My guest was Kerry Newhoff. He's the author of the book, At Your Best. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, Kerry Newhoff. It's N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash at your best, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.